Hello and welcome to the Wabi Sabi series podcast. This is where we have unlikely conversations on uncomfortable topics. For those of you that have been listening to the podcast for the past year, yes, I'm excited to say we are nearly at 12 months that we've been running this, which is super exciting. I decided I wanted to do something a little bit different for you today. The premise of the podcast came from the series of books that I wrote around topics that made people feel a little bit uncomfortable. And I felt that there were particular chapters in some of those books that are really pertinent. So if you haven't had a chance to read any or you've read one or maybe haven't seen them as yet, then I figured actually let's share some of those topics. And if you have read them and heard it, well, some of the stuff that I'm going to share with you is probably a good reminder as well. So today I'm going to read you a chapter from the book Death Doesn't Have to be Morbid, which is really around life, death and learning to grieve. And um, there are a couple of lessons in there that I think are uh, really interesting for people. So hopefully you enjoy that. I'd love to know what you think. And uh, thank you for those people that have rated and provided a review on the podcast because it really does make a difference. And if you feel compelled to, I'd love you to uh, do a review and rate for me here because it really helps to get these podcasts and these um, conversations out to more and more people, which is really important. I get some beautiful feedback that they do make a difference and it makes people think about things a little bit differently. This uh, book, particularly the whole point about the title was that people get really freaked out about talking about death and they do feel that it's a morbid topic and we shouldn't talk about it. And yet I think we should talk about it more because it actually helps to drive you and to make you appreciate what is really important in life. And for me, that's something to be reminded of every single day. So please enjoy this uh, short, sharp podcast. I'll be back next week with a interview with another guest, but I hope you like this little shorter format that I'll do a few more in future. Okay, please enjoy. Becoming a motherless daughter. Losing a parent is often thought of as the natural order of things, as opposed to a parent burying their child. I was 25 when mum first became ill, and not once did it ever cross my mind, even right up until her final days, that she would leave us. She was invincible in my eyes, and she was going to beat this thing. After the losses I'd endured up to the point that mum died, I thought by then I was getting pretty good at this grieving stuff. I understood the phases of the grieving process, because it is a process, and knew I needed to make time to work through the loss when it occurred and give myself space in order to do that. I was naively unaware that I was about to embark on the toughest grieving journey I'd endured yet. Mum had breast cancer and had spent many months being diagnosed incorrectly, which meant by the time they realised she had a malignant tumour, she did not have the best chance of recovery. I talk about this in more depth in another book in the series called Doctors Are Not Gods. Unfortunately, Mum's cancer was very aggressive, The cancer spread quickly and moved into her lymph nodes and throughout her bloodstream. It was 18 months from the first diagnosis to when she took her last breath in her own bed at home with us all nearby. She had palliative care and our dad was her primary carer the previous nine months, so he was exhausted, both physically and emotionally. I 
can't even imagine how hard it was for him to watch his partner of 30 years not only physically deteriorate in front of his eyes, but to feel an immense sense of helplessness to take away her pain and make her better. She passed in the night, and while incredibly sad, there was a sense of relief that she no longer had to endure the pain and degradation of her spirit any longer. She was 47 years old, the exact age I am now, sitting here writing this, which just feels so surreal. The youngest of her four children, my brother Michael, was only 14. The thing with having time to contemplate your death is that you have plenty of opportunity to get things in order. Mum had gotten us to write lists of things that needed to be done, people she had to speak to, and things she wanted to gift to them while she was still alive. She had lost both her parents early too. They died at 50 and 52 and had both remarried, so she knew firsthand the mess that can occur around your last will and testament after you're gone. She was having none of that. She gave away art pieces and paintings she'd created to those who had admired them over the years, gave clothing pieces to friends who had always wanted them, and even went through all her jewellery and gave out pieces to the people she wanted to have them. My sister and I were each given a ring that had been part of our grandmother's collection, and then she told us four kids we had to sit down and go through the rest of her jewellery and take turns to choose pieces we wanted. She'd told us the detailed elements of her funeral, what flowers, what music, what photos to use. While uncomfortable for many to talk about this stuff with the person present, it's incredibly helpful, as there's a few less things you need to make a decision on when the time comes. And trust me, you'll need it. There are so many questions thrown at you when you're arranging someone's funeral at your most vulnerable, many of which you just wouldn't have thought of or could ever prepare for. Once mum had passed, I did what I often do to avoid things and threw myself into organiser mode to make the funeral perfect, just as she had planned. The grief was bubbling and I was desperately trying to remain strong for everyone around me. Dad was fragile my siblings were traumatised, and friends were calling in shock, asking what they could do to help. I needed to keep my shit together so this whole circus didn't crumble. In truth, I felt I didn't have time to grieve. Another interesting thing with losing someone over a prolonged period is that your grieving starts long before the person dies, sometimes without you even realising it. It might be the physical or mental effects that the illness has on them, that strip your loved one of who they once were. In my case, I found a person who wasn't quite like the mother I'd known all my 27 years to date. When she was not as agile, or the medication made her a little spaced out, I grieved for the person she was before, and the long, interesting conversations we once had. When mum's body was so sore and painful due to the burns that radiation therapy caused, and she wouldn't let anyone touch her, I grieved for not being able to just hold her and give her a hug. To add more salt to the wound, one of the hardest things of all through this time was that when you're in so much pain, heartbreak and sorrow, who do you normally turn to for comfort? Your mum, of course. We were all feeling it. Not just us kids, nor dad and mum's cousins who lived nearby. So many of her friends were missing her wise counsel and chats over a big, perfectly brewed cup of tea. She was always the glue that brought everyone together. 
For as long as I can remember, our family home had always been a suburban meeting place where people gathered at all hours for hours on end. And while the house had been just as busy with palliative nurses and doctors, visitors and all us kids who had come home to be with her in her final weeks, the lightness of being was replaced with a dark, murky sense of dread. With mum buried, the wake over and most people gone from the house, it was time for us to try and reinstate some sense of normalcy, especially for my younger brother and sister who were still living at home. Easy to do superficially, put on a stoic face, go back to work and school, reorganise the house, but we were to find it was far more difficult deep within our souls to return to normal. What I would come to learn is that mothers create a massive hole in your heart when you lose them, and it's a hole that no one will ever be able to fix or fill. This was something that would take me years to fully appreciate after continuously chastising myself for getting upset about trivial things that reminded me of her. I remember accidentally breaking a vase that she'd made me years before and falling to the floor, bawling my eyes out, so angry at myself for being so careless. It seemed ridiculous, really, because the vase wasn't expensive and I didn't even particularly like it that much. It was just that she had made it and nothing could replace it. I had this self-imposed expectation that after six months or so of grieving, I should be over it. The pain was as deep as I expected it to be. I cried probably as much as I thought I should have. I'd gotten on with my life, work, and navigated the lack of support people give you while grieving. Like I said before, I'd done this a few times. I thought I had it in the bag. I was now a motherless daughter. It was sad, but I'd survived the loss. The importance of talking it through. Twelve months on and my husband found me having a panic attack in the bottom of the shower. Who was I kidding? It was the anniversary of mum's death and I'd felt terrible all day. Ridiculously, I hadn't thought I would be affected that much and didn't think to take the day off work or do something kind and gentle for myself. I had to leave work at lunchtime because I was on the verge of tears all day and when you work at a hotel, surrounded by people, that's not a good look. Typically, in those days, I would try to hide my grief, so I hadn't told a soul that it was mum's anniversary, which made it difficult for anyone to support me or understand what was going on. It meant that people just avoided me all day. I came home, and the only thing I could think to do was to have a shower to make me feel better. As the hot water cleansed my skin, something cracked deep within. A tiny thread that had been wound around all my sadness and grief, finally broke. And the walls of my internal emotional dam crumbled. The tears came in droves, deep, guttural, sobbing, releasing pain. Emotion and tension that had been trapped within the fibre of my muscles for the past two years. I have no idea how long I was in the bottom of the shower, when my husband found me. He was horrified and got me up and out of the shower, covered me and put me in bed to stop my shivering. It seems the girl who thought she could overcome grief by suppressing it and just moving on had made it so much worse and my body couldn't take it any longer. I knew that I needed help to work through it because clearly I wasn't doing that myself. For the first time in my life, I made an appointment with a counsellor and it was the best thing I could have done. 
While it's talked about more today, there still remains a stigma around seeking support from counsellors or psychologists for mental health, which we all need to move on from. A friend compares her therapy to getting your car serviced. She says, We ensure all our machinery runs perfectly and pay annually to get cars, water filters and even ovens serviced by professionals. But we think it's strange to see mind and emotional experts to get a check-up every once in a while to ensure the most important machine of our life, our brain, is running optimally. The benefit in talking with someone who doesn't know you or your family, and not even the loved one you're grieving about, is that it gives them a wonderful distance to ask questions and talk about things that are difficult for others to raise without getting upset. I sat with a counsellor for three hours, and she asked me questions about my mum, what I loved about her, what I missed about her, why I was angry at her, There was no judgment, no emotion from her, just a matter-of-fact question-and-answer session. It was so incredibly cathartic. And I hadn't really spoken to anyone about any of those things for the 12 months Mum had been gone. This was just the beginning of the long road ahead, along which I'd realise that when a mother dies, a daughter's grieving never really ends. A book I had recommended to me over this period was Motherless Daughters, The Legacy of Loss, and it was incredibly helpful to get through some dark times. Author Hope Edelman captures interviews with hundreds of women who've lost their mothers. It covers a range of topics, and I've told many others about it over the years, including men, as I've found when talking to male friends who've also lost their mums, that their experiences around their loss are not too dissimilar. One section in the book I remember vividly is where Edelman talks of no one in your life ever loving you as your mother does. There is no love as pure and unconditional. This spoke volumes to me and helped me understand just why the pain in my chest was still so profound, even years later, and why it was unlike any other loss I'd experienced up until that point in time. Life continues on around us. It happened to be Mother's Day the very next week after we'd buried our mum. Terrible timing, but sometimes life is just shit like that. I recall going into a news agency for the paper and stopping in my tracks. I was surrounded by hundreds of Mother's Day cards, these bright, shiny, happy pieces of coloured cardboard mocking my pain and loss. I stood there motionless. I wanted to scream, to rip them all up and tell everyone in the store how bloody unfair it was that my mum had been torn away from us far too early in life. After Mum had gone, I felt like I'd lost my bearings for a while. This morning period felt at times like swimming in sand. Every day was tough. Getting out of bed, having to go to work and talk to people, working in tourism with customers and clients all day, I found it took everything I had not to bite their heads off if they had a trivial complaint. At times I wanted to yell at them, You're lucky to bloody well be alive. It doesn't matter if your towels weren't changed in your hotel room today. But of course, it did matter to them. And while it was a little trivial, it wasn't their fault that my mum had died. During this time, I had friends who were having big issues with their mothers that I really struggled to understand. One was constantly fighting with her mum, and another had stopped talking to her mother the year before due to something that I felt was pretty insignificant. These two friends didn't know each other, but ironically both felt the need to call me and bitch about their mums on the odd occasion. 
I remember being so angry with both of them at the time, and I had to try and curb that anger into gentler words of encouragement to understand their viewpoint. For me, it was cut and dry. They were bloody lucky to have their mums alive, and I would have done anything, including swallowing my pride and giving in on an argument, if only I could have my mum back sitting next to me, alive, once again. They were tough lessons to learn around everything just moving on around us, and the brutal cycle of life stopping for no one. As life carried on and time healed, as they say, things got easier, but I'd still find myself tripping up every now and then. A few health issues were surfacing for me, and given the personal nature of my symptoms, I really needed to talk to Mum so she could give me some advice. But of course, I couldn't. Other times, I'd pick up the phone automatically to tell her about something trivial that I thought she'd find amusing, and then feel stupid for momentarily forgetting she was not here. The reality is that you may not have called your mother at these times and turned to one of your mates instead. It doesn't matter. The fact that you can't call her when you want to or feel the need to is why you feel ripped off. I found as I got older and was working through big, monumental decisions, I missed her more and more. I still had Dad, a husband, and plenty of friends to talk to about stuff, but there are just certain things a girl needs to seek her mum's advice on. The strange dichotomy when dealing with such raw grief is that you want, even try, to encourage people to move on and be more normal around you, not treating you with kid gloves and the like. But when the world does move on, it's like the entire universe is being disrespectful to the person gone. The poem Funeral Blues, written by W. H. Auden in 1936, perfectly captures the sentiment that many feel in those early months after a significant loss. The opening line, Stop all the clocks, hits me firmly in the chest every time I hear it, and I can never read the poem in full without tearing up and thinking of the many loved ones I've lost. So there you have it, a little reading from the book Death Doesn't Have to Be Morbid. Hope you found that insightful. If you'd like to read the book in full, you can find the books on my website, wabisabiseries.com. Also, they're available on Audible if you want to listen more to my voice, reading them to you, and uh, most uh, online bookstores as well. And please let me know what you think of the little short, sharp episodes if you'd like to hear more of these. And uh, yeah, drop me a line. Hello at wabisabiseries.com or on Instagram, uh, Facebook, any of the channels that you uh, prefer to hang out on. Hope to uh, hear your thoughts and feedback and uh, I'll otherwise hear from you next week. <laughs>